Well, we are not in Job this morning. Um, we are in Matthew 21. So while you're turning there, I wonder, have you ever heard someone say that Jesus Christ is simply a messenger of love? That he, he was just a rabbi who lived a long time ago. He never claimed to be king. He never claimed to be God. He never claimed what people claim today about him. And scripture doesn't really say it either. Have you ever heard someone say that? They pick and choose Jesus Christ's words. And they try to eliminate those passages that show that he's not only the one who is to come as the Messiah, but they actually uh, eliminate those scriptures, or try to, that ex- where he accepts praise as only God himself is proper to be praised. So often in scripture we see angels, when they are praised, they say, no, God alone um, is only worthy of such praise. Christ accepts praise, we see. One such passage is Matthew 21. Jesus Christ here, he's not only presented as king, he's not only presented as fulfilling the scriptures and the person of the Messiah, but he is presented as the preserver and savior. He's presented also as the one who deserves all praise. Look at Matthew 21. Let's read. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of a bird. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them. And he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats on the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. The crowds going ahead of him... Uh, And those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple. We'll stop there. This this passage is what we call Jesus' triumphal entry. Um, it's a wondrous scene. And humanly speaking, not according to God's divine plan of salvation, but humanly speaking, it's the only thing that went right this week. Israel receives her king gloriously. Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. Um, In fact, we're told from John that that's why the crowd was so large, because when he had raised Lazarus from the dead, people saw it who were there, and then they went into surrounding towns and said, look what just happened. And so more people came out to meet him. And remember, this is Passover. So everywhere in the ancient Near East, everywhere even in Rome, if you were a Jew, you wanted to get to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And it is unlike anything we've ever seen. It is a city that is um, uh, feasting and celebrating for eight days. 
So there would be people already in Jerusalem who would have, where you'd see big crowds. But additionally, because of this uh, amazing miracle, the crowds are bolstered. Well, he sends two disciples, and they were divinely appointed for this day. In fact, Jesus tells them exactly what to say in order to accomplish what he tells them. And really, the only way that this works is if you're omniscient. Jesus knew that the owner would be amenable to the proposition, and he tells them the exact words to say. He does this again for the preparations of the Passover in the upper room. So Jesus comes to Jerusalem on the tail end of his greatest public miracle. And the disciples do what he told them to do, and they bring these animals back. And we're to understand that these animals are relatively the same size and height. And so they throw their cloaks uh, on both of them so that Jesus can ride across both of them. And these would be heavy cloaks. Uh, Back in these times, you would wear what's called your tunic, and then you'd wear your, your outside clothes, which is your cloak. And it was sort of, your tunic was sort of long underwear. Um, and so you could take your cloak off without, you know, being exposed. And so that's what they did. They took off their cloaks, threw them across these animals, and Jesus uh, rides them into town. Additionally, the crowd starts taking off their tunics and they put them in front of the animals so that the, the animals actually walk across uh, their clothes. And this is an act of reverence that we just don't understand in our modern times. Um, this is, uh, we're such a modern culture, but they are, they're taking off their very clothes and putting them down because this person is too holy. This person is, must have reverence. He was too good, too regal to walk on the ground. And not even him. Your cloak would be tramped on by these animals. We call this the triumphal entry because it parallels what we see in the ancient world when someone was a victor. We see this with uh, Scipio Africanus. You probably don't know that name, but he is probably the greatest general that Rome has ever known. Um, he, He was instrumental in defeating Hannibal at the Battle of Zama. Sorry, lots of words. But if you remember back to your ancient history, you remember Rome had one enemy, Carthage, and they wanted Carthage wiped off the map completely. And so this is why this defeat uh, was not only so decisive, but so glorious to Rome. All Rome hated Carthage. In fact, Cato the Elder, who was a statesman, would end all his speeches in the Senate saying, Carthago delende est. You know, he would talk about whatever he's going to talk about, and then he said, Carthage must be destroyed. So he'd say, we need, we need to fix the sewers, clean up the streets, and by the way, Carthage must be destroyed. So finally, Carthage is destroyed, and Scipio comes back, and they receive him. And when he would come back, he would drop off uh, those uh, captors for execution. Uh, the procession would start coming into Rome with two white oxen, And they would march right up to the Capitoline Hill into the Temple of Jupiter and sacrifice immediately. And they would paint uh, the victor in red because they saw him not only as a king, but divine. Because on feast days, they would also paint 
the statue of Jupiter read. So they saw him as standing in the place of Jupiter as divine. So keep that in mind. There are some scholars today who say that, you know, these biblical accounts, uh, they're embellished by the authors. Um, the account in Matthew, it can't be true. Uh, either it's nothing or it's too much. One such professor at uh, Chapel Hill says, uh, the disciples, they read way too much into their experiences and then, uh, you know, they embellished it. They added these random scriptures that Jesus really didn't fulfill. And really, Jesus entering into Jerusalem, he would have looked like any other Jew. He would have just walked humbly into town. This is probably what it, what it was really like. So ostensibly, he says, oh, it's just no big deal. This professor born 2,000 years um, after Christ uh, walked on the earth, apparently he knows better than the eyewitness accounts um, that we read in our Bibles. It was a big deal. These are eyewitness accounts, and it is a big deal. To the Jews of the first century, they were mindful of similar processions that had happened in the past. David, you'll remember uh, countless times, would have victory processions back into Jerusalem. Even Solomon, when he was declared king in 1 Kings 1, there is a huge uh, procession when he becomes king. In 1 Kings 1, it says that uh, Zadok the priest, who then took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon, they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live Solomon. Uh, excuse me, long live King Solomon. All the people went up after him, and the people were playing on flutes, rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth shook at the noise. It wasn't just, you know, five guys and a trumpet. This was a, a crowd coming in as a procession. It's a big deal. And a Jew would know this. A first century Jew would know his scriptures and know this procession means something. They know what they're doing. Another professor says, this is very unlikely and we would never see something like this in the first century. So far-fetched uh, because Rome would have decisively done something about this. They would have seen this procession and say, we've got to uh, deal with this, this king or would-be king. He seems to be, uh, sadly, a little ignorant of how the Romans viewed um, Israel in this time. You have to remember, uh, you have to understand that Israel is a third-tier Roman province. And you say, well, who cares? What does that mean? It means that if you lived here, you would not get Roman citizenship. You didn't really want to be here. You remember Paul uh, of Tarsus. He actually grew up in Cilicia. He grew up in a province where wherever you were born, you would get Roman citizenship. That's why in the book of Acts, we see he uses that to his advantage at times. You didn't want to be here as a Roman. Israel is just a, a speck of dirt. It's a, it, they're a pebble in the shoe of Rome. I recently read a very, very, very boring book. It's called Life as a Roman Soldier. Um, and... There was way too much detail. But one thing that it did give me, this is one of those hardship tours to a Roman. You wouldn't want to be in a province like Israel. You would want, you want to be somewhere else. So you would be biding your time until you could be somewhere better. And really, they looked at this, they would see an obscure Jewish guy 
coming, riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. And remember, it's Passover as well. So if you were a Jew in the ancient world, you would be here. And so it could have been unnoticed as well because there's lots of people in the town as well. But it could be that they did notice it. But it wouldn't have been a threat. We are in Palestine to them. It's nothing. Pilate the governor. You know, we look at Pilate and we say, oh, he's this powerful Roman. And to a certain extent, he is a powerful Roman. But he is a governor of a third-tier Roman province. He's, he hadn't been doing well in his career. And in fact, after this, I don't know if you know, but shortly after, he's fired um, for just doing some uh, bad stuff to Samaritans. He's fired, and we never hear about him in, in uh, history again. So as amazing as we see the triumphal entry of Scipio Africanus, as amazing as that would have been to a Roman, we have something here wholly different. This is centuries in the making. It's you have to remember, I mean, we're in limitations and we're, we're studying with Tao how Jeremiah is lamenting that God has taken his people, his covenant people, and put them in captivity. But he's back now. According to them, it looks like God, God is with us again. And so it's similar to after the Babylonian captivity, we're studying Lamentations. This is, you know, 586 B.C. with, with Tao. You know, hundreds of years later, finally in like 200 B.C., Israel actually takes back the Temple Mount. And we see a triumphal entry at this point. In, it's described in First Maccabees, which is not a book of our Bible, but it is a book of history. Simon and his men entered the fort singing hymns of praise uh, and th- and. Thanksgiving while carrying palm branches and playing harps, cymbals, and lyres. Palm branches in the ancient world became synonymous with Nike, you know, the shoes, Nike. That's the goddess of victory. And so they had these palm branches. This is similar to what we see in uh, Matthew 21. They put down palm branches. They put down their cloaks uh, because it is a triumphal entry. It is a, a, a victory march. So Jesus is presented as king. We have the king of kings entering into the most important city on the planet, the place where the temple stood. Not a temple to Jupiter, but a temple to the living God. He's going to enter Jerusalem, and he's going to go right into the only valid temple on the planet. There's no sacrifice that's made today, but there soon will be. You know, what's interesting is that so often in Christ's ministry, we see him, you know, either slipping into Jerusalem unnoticed or performing a miracle, and then, you know, he says, don't tell anyone. Or even when they, they recognize, wow, this was an amazing miracle that we just saw that this guy did. Let's try to make him king. And he slips through their, the crowd. We have none of that here. He doesn't stop anything. And in fact, he tells them to go and get the donkey and the young horse for him to ride into town. And as people are praising him and as people are shouting, he doesn't stop any of it. And you know, Christ, we see so often in the scriptures, he walks, he walked everywhere 
he probably didn't ride a day in his life, but he rides here to fulfill the scriptures. The scriptures that are mentioned here are Isaiah 62 and Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He fulfills these scriptures. And it's very interesting what John tells us about that because we wonder as the disciples were doing this, did they immediately recognize what was happening? And they didn't. John tells us in John 12, 16, these things his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So as the disciples reminisce, the Holy Spirit brings these scriptures to mind and they remember, they have aha moments. It's like, Don't, do you remember that scene right before he was crucified? So you have the entire city in an uproar, as the text says. And it says, you know, there's people, they're talking about Christ, they're talking about Lazarus, they're talking about this is the prophet to come. This is the prophet Jesus, the one from Nazareth of Galilee. Everybody is talking about Christ. He's more than a king. He's more than a rabbi. He's more than a teacher. He's now pictured as a prophet. And so what do the crowd begin to say? What do they begin to sing and chant? Hosanna to the son of David. We sang this last week, Hosanna. And it means, Lord, save us. This is what they're saying. They're saying and constantly singing, Lord, save us. And look what they say, son of David. They picture Jesus as preserver and savior. This is from Psalm 118. There's regal language everywhere. Son of David. You would only call someone the son of David for a very specific reason. You see him in the line of David as the one who has come, who was prophesied about, who was going to rule. Look at what they say. Lord, save us. They say, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they're singing this. Lord, save us, save us. And when we hear this, we look at it and we're tempted to see it as in the context of salvation, of that the Lord is going to save us from our sin. That's a little different than what we have in Psalm 118. They're actually talking about as a king would throw off the enemies of Israel, preserve us as your subjects, sustain us as king. But with that said, how can we not see the prophetic language of what was going to happen in the next week? It's almost as if they, they don't even understand what they're saying when they say, Lord, save us. But reading the scriptures, we do. It's similar to what Caiaphas said. You remember Caiaphas was the high priest uh, when Christ was crucified. And what does he say? Uh, the book of John says that he says, while they're planning and plotting to crucify Christ, they say, it's expedient for one man to die to save a nation. And you hear that. But what he meant was, let's kill this guy so Rome doesn't uh, slaughter Israel. 
But the language is prophetic because that's exactly what he did, wasn't it? He, he was the substitutionary atonement to save Israel and then by extension us Gentiles. That's what we have here. This is prophetic language and yet they don't really understand what they're saying but they would one day. Lord, save us. And so let's just, let's stay in the moment for a while. Let's not be quick to jump to the crucifixion. Uh, what a scene. What an image of Israel. This is why I said at the beginning that this is like one of the only things that went right this week, humanly speaking. And it says in Luke 19, a parallel passage, that they were hanging on every word that he was saying. And can you imagine the disciples? You know, we're, we, this is a huge crowd of people. But can you imagine if you're one of the 12 and you're walking into town with Jesus? And one of them is Judas. What's he thinking? By this time, he had already, uh, you know, sold out Christ. What is he thinking? It's like, uh-oh, maybe he has a little buyer's remorse right here. We don't know. Who knows? And the religious leaders. The religious leaders were always quick to quash anything uh, that venerated Christ or, or held him up higher than them. They're, they're here, but they're just grinding their teeth. Nobody can do anything to stop it. Nobody stops it. Israel receives Jesus as they should. And listen to what Luke tells us in the parallel passage. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, uh, probably a, not nearly a mile from the temple, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Uh, this, is, this is wondrous. This is amazing. It's as if, if you didn't read the rest of the New Testament and you were right here, I bet you couldn't figure out what was going to happen. But look at what Luke says. For all the miracles which they had seen. This is coming on the cusp of a three-year ministry. And they're talking about, oh, wait a minute, I remember the first one. I was in Cana of Galilee when he turned water into wine. They're talking about all of the miracles. And Jesus is presented here with, as the one who deserves all praise. They not only think that uh, God is with them again, they have sent, sent to them a prophet, a priest, a king, unlike anything they've ever seen in Israel's history. Well, they continue to sing. They continue to sing as they go. As I said, we're not quite a mile uh, from uh, the temple, but they're walking, uh, they, they're singing, and uh, they're singing as Christ continues. And so the Pharisees are here, and they hear, they hear what everybody's singing, and, and they're, they're annoyed, they're angry, and they, they, tell, they tell Jesus, you know, why don't you rebuke your disciples? We're getting a little annoyed here. Do you remember what he says? He says, if they fall silent, even the rocks will cry out. 
This is a, div- a divine scene, an amazing scene. And then somewhere in the midst of this scene, Christ takes up a lament. When he sees Jerusalem, he sees the city, he weeps over it, he laments. He says, if you had known this day, personifying Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you had known in this day even the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. And then he speaks about what would happen 40 years in the future when the temple would be destroyed for the second time and Jerusalem would be leveled by Titus. In the midst of this receiving of the king, there's this sad lament that pictures Israel who has rejected their king or would reject him just a moment in the future. Well, they continue to sing. They continue to march. They go straight to the temple. But instead of entering a pagan temple, Jesus makes a beeline for the temple. And we are still in triumphal entry. Don't think that we're gone from it. He performs a miracle right before them. Uh, It's my favorite miracle. It, It happens twice in his ministry. He cleanses the temple. It's my favorite miracle because I just wonder how this would happen. It's divine because imagine money changers. You would have beefy guys there um, guarding your money and somehow, because he's divine, Jesus Christ just overturns their tables and kicks them out of the temple. But we're still in the triumphal entry. And he performs this miracle. And then the text goes on. Verse 12, Jesus entered the temple, threw out the sellers and the buyers in the temple, overturned the tables of the money changers, overturned the seats of the sellers of doves. And he says to them, it is written, my house is called a house of prayer, but you make it a cave of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And the chief priests and the scribes, seeing the miracle, the marvels, which he did, and the children crying out in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They were annoyed, and they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus says to them, Yes, have you never read from the mouth of babes and those nursed, nursing, you prepare praise. He performs miracles. He does this miracle. He overturns the money changers' tables, kicks them out of the temple, and then he heals. He heals people. But don't forget, all the while, in the background, the children are still singing. The children are still singing Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. They, they continue singing so much that they annoy the Pharisees. They can't stand hearing this anymore. The children are still singing. To the religious leaders, he doesn't deserve this praise but because we know who he is. They can't praise him enough. He deserves all praise. Jesus quotes Psalm 8-2. From the mouth of babes and those nursing, you prepared praise. But you know what Psalm 8-1 says, which is what 
The praise is, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. The children were part of this triumphal entry. The children that came in that weren't mentioned up until now are still singing. And they were prepared for this very day uh, to sing, Lord, save us. Lord, save us. Even after the miracle, even after he's healing, continues to sing. 